Nearly sat on my microphone then. Unfortunate. <laughs> Such or a thrilling, throne. as the case might be. This is going very well already, isn't it? <laughs> welcome to Adelaide, welcome to South Australia. Thank you very much. It's great. I've had a... I've had a great uh, 24 hours since I've been here. Of course, I went to Central Market straight away because it's my favourite thing. And then I took the kids today and Crab kind of laughed and said, I'll tell everyone this tonight. I took, and I don't know why this is apparently notable, I took the kids to the beach house. I said, everyone would just go off. <laughs> why? Correctly. The kids loved it. I mean, I walked in and just went like, oh my God, we have a nervous <laughs> breakdown. But what, is it daggy? Look, in, I think like, it's a venue, am I correct, uh, people, where... The Venn diagram of uh, juvenile experience and adult experience just do not meet at all. And that's one of those remarkable things. It's like laser tag or anything like that where all adults just go, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. like it's very like windy and like a My bit, kids you know, loved it. And uh, yeah, in, when I was growing up, it used to be called Magic Mountain. <laughs> sort of like an architectural poop in the middle of... <laughs> Just like a big brown mound <laughs> with like water slides weaving in and out of it. Brilliant. It's pretty pretty much like that. I was relieved that it wasn't outdoors, so I didn't have to get any sun on me. Isn't it? I mean, is it or isn't it? No, is it it's or, kind of no, inside. Sort of a bit inside, but a bit outside. I don't know. I made. I made strike me as entirely weatherproof. <laughs> I made the fatal error of telling a mate who lives in Adelaide, like, yeah, come along, we'll catch up there. And then realised when we got there that his daughter's like two, and my oh, kids are eight and ten. Fantastic. And so we just kind of texted each other like we do when I'm in Sydney. So we never barely saw each other. And yet somehow you'd still split up by the time the day was over. Like, because that's my experience of, like, yeah, of right, that exactly. venue. Uh, yes. Well, look, I mean, it's great to see that your conditional visa was approved for South Australia, despite yes, your you know, rough Queensland origins. Um, I, of course, was uh, born and bred. Uh, <laughs> Very nice to be back on Garnland. Very big shout out to the traditional owners of this particular patch of soil. And my God, it's a great place to be. Um, I... Do you know what? It was greater because, because tell you, I'll tell you something that happened. I went to Central Markets and I texted Crab when I was in the way and I was like, you know where I'm going? I'm going to that place that has the tiny bowls, which is in that little arcade. Just the Japanese shop, you know. The yeah, one. you all know where it's going, don't you? And I'm she like, knows I'm going to get my tiny bowl shop. I'm going to get, have see what tiny bowls they've got. And then I get to where the little Japanese shop is and it's all under renovation. I was very heartbroken. Couldn't get any t- anything tiny. <laughs> So I recently went to Sales' house for dinner and I, I have never seen that many tiny bowls uh, <laughs> as part of a mise en place. And at some point, like, I'm not misremembering this, am I? At some point, like, you had, like, a tiny bowl full of, like, chiffonaded coriander. And I just said, oh, do you want me to sprinkle that on the whatever it was? And you're like, no. <laughs> well, do you know? You were like I gadget was... arm. Like, no, I will I... sprinkle the chiffonaded herbs that you know I put what? in I, my I, tiny I, bowl. I think it was your beloved, and I hope I'm not uh, you know, fingering the wrong person here, but Jared... <laughs> if that's happened, you're definitely not the wrong person. <laughs> but... So I had all my tiny bowls arrayed with various bits and pieces, and then Jeremy at a certain point said... Oh my god, is this actually for the dinner? I thought it was like just the hors d'oeuvres I've been eating out of the <laughs> That is actually classic Jeremy. He's a terrible mise en place. 
I could have told you that earlier. Just before we just get properly underway, I should say that, um, as you know, when we do live shows, which we haven't done in Adelaide for a little while, so, like, awesome to be back. Um, we do select a local charity to send a bit of coinage in the direction of... God, I've entered a sentence with a preposition, which is not my normal way. Please forgive me. Um, so tonight it's uh, the Vinnie's Women's Crisis Centre... Today, celebrating its fifth birthday. Now, this is totally accidental, but also incredibly significant, really, because it is the um, international day today for the elimination of violence against women. And this crowd has been together and providing services for five years now. It's about a 20-room facility where you can bring a pet to, which is very, at the time it was established, unusual, because, you know, when people are fleeing a domestic violence situation or family violence situation, you know, you want to take everything you can, you can't always bring a pet. And in those five years, they've assisted 5,000 people, which is like, they've got an occupancy rate of 95% average over that time. So like, great job and thank you for being here with us tonight. Have we got, are the representatives, where are they? We've got, I know we've got some Just go. representatives in the house. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> oh yeah, I got a wool. Um, now, like, quite a bit of time has elapsed since we were last here on this stage, and it wasn't even this stage because I think we were the last show in the old Hermage. Yes. Before it was demolished. Like, literally, we brought the house down. And that's why, and look, it's... It was we, destroyed, apart from the facade. <laughs> that's why we picked God Save the Queen, as well as, yeah. I'm going to talk about the crown a bit later, but yeah, but her match. She loves to over-explain the music choice. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just like, yep. A bit of thought goes into it. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, yeah, this whole theatre was demolished and rebuilt in the years since we were last uh, together here. And, weirdly enough, I mean... The same can be said of our guest on that night, Hans. Yeah. Who also has demolished and rebuilt. The the audience clearly knows something about this because everyone went, oh, yeah, oh, gee, Hans. Well, like, so, I mean... We made him famous, obviously. Well, clearly. Um, he was nobody. And he was one of our first ever guests, actually, because I think that was show... Was our first live show guest? I think he was our first ever guest, and it was one of the very early Chat 10 live shows when we just started doing them. Right. And then, as, as everyone in Adelaide knows, right, like, he had... I mean, when he went on to... I mean, he was on um, America's Got Talent, became an like, international superstar, and actually Googled him today, and the first drop-down question is... <laughs> Is Hans really German? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> Americans, they're so literal. But anyway, um, but yeah, then so- a few months back, he was in this terrible accident on board a Turkish cruise vessel where he was performing on stage and fell into the orchestra oh. pit. Oh, that's awful. Well, it, I mean, bad injuries? Or- yeah, yeah, like pretty bad. Like oh. he injured his spine, I think, crushed his foot. He was like medivac to London. Oh my I'm pretty God. sure. Is yeah. it, so has anyone heard from him or? Well, I've. Bitch, <laughs> let's find out tonight. Oh my gosh, yes, honeys. Oh, Lee Sales. Mwah, mwah. Annabelle Alexander Hamilton Crab, my gosh. Her Majesty's Theatre. <laughs> Where, look at this. Oh, my God, honey. Where am I meant to put the bloody sticks, for God's sake? Hi, kids. How are you all feeling? <laughs> How oh. are you feeling? Viguettes. Well, listen, I've had to... I'm just out of a moon boot, so I have had to wear my Birkenstocks tonight. <laughs> 
and looking around at this audience, <laughs> I don't think I'm the only one. Jesus, look at them. You've got your Burks on, haven't you, honey? I know, I know. Look at them. It's, this is amazing. This is practically a cult. It's wonderful. It is. The chat, they are the sea org of podcasts, aren't they? The chat is all This is like audience. that little island in Vanuatu that still worships Prince Philip. I mean, you are a titular figure in the... Yes. In the so, um, Betty back to London. Oh, honey. Oh. Yes, absolutely. What happened? Well, I don't do things by halves. <laughs> I don't. What happened was, listen, Lee, if I, just a word of advice to everybody, don't rely on the Turkish health system, okay? <laughs> Not the best place for an emergency, okay? Oh. Not the best place. So, I was, okay, so what happened was, I, I was on this ship. It was a surprise, gay cruise. <laughs> Doing this show, being adored by all these poofs, loving it. And um, there was uh, hi- three hydraulic lifts at the front of the stage. And we had planned for the final song, Proud Mary. I mean, we're on gay cruise, hello. Um, that two backing dancers, when it gets to the fast bit, you know, these boys were going to shoot up onto the stage. Unfortunately... One of the lifts was lowered in the second to last song, oh. and I was in the audience, went up onto the stairs, did not see. Oh. Form- That's the kind of reaction we're looking for. Thank you. <laughs> oh. that is- and you like this, though. The song I was performing at the time, my heart will go on. Thank you. <laughs> That's oh. awkward, didn't it? I mean, because, you know... Um, if it had ended really badly, that would have been your obituary line, you know, because, like, my heart my will, go will go on. My will go on. Ironically, exactly. not. Um, exactly. God. Well, I mean, I did read about the accident. I was obviously, first of all, massively seized with distress. And then I thought, that is the most theatrical possible accident. Oh, I mean, the rest of us would have just... It was, pretty, you know, it was pretty theatrical, yeah. Did and you, it, even in the midst of your horrific pain and distress, just think, I have nailed the theatre of this particular uh, misadventure. I was more worried about why they had not given me anything stronger than paracetamol for two days. Oh. Fabulous. That's why I wanted to get on a plane to oh, London. Okay? No. So, yes. And so then what happened when you got to London? When I got to London, oh my God, the day I got there, Liz Truss, out. Two days later, Liz W, dead. Oh my God. <laughs> Three prime ministers and two monarchs in the time I was in London. It was amazing. It was amazing. So, okay, but then what happened was, because, you know, I mean, apparently there aren't any other journalists anywhere in the world. So Australia sent about 700 people to cover the death of the Queen. Most of them were from the ABC, which was wonderful. Oh, come on, oh, that is not fair. I didn't go. Oh, we're not allowed to not joke about um, so, you know, they all came to the hospital. So, but Koshi and Nat turn up. Um, okay, I have to say, they did not know you had to do the rat test. So, Koshi and Nat are spotted going into a public toilet in London to shove things up their nose. I mean, it's like Logie's night all over again. And then... My favourite one, though, was... Okay, so I had the surgery on a Friday and they put, like, a nerve block in my leg I on love that this Saturday. is making the social pages, glamorous. your nerve block. This is getting glamorous. It was quite hurty, I imagine. It was quite hurty and, you know, thank, more than paracetamol, thank God. So the Saturday, I'm thinking, okay, I'm not leaving this bed. The Sunday, I had a friend coming in the afternoon. So I thought, okay, I'll just stay in bed for as long as possible and about 3.30, I'll, you know, 
put some eyelashes on. Um, <laughs> then I get a knock on the door. Angela Bishop has turned up. <laughs> Looking amazing. <laughs> looking, I look like a scrag. I'm still in the hospital gown. <laughs> and then I look to the left, and there is, yes, a full bottle of you, Ryan, next to me. Thank you. <laughs> it was my own, Lee. It was my own. It's okay. The glamour. The glamour never ends. Oh, the glamour. Wow. <laughs> Look, Angie's probably seen worse. She's I, interviewed a lot of celebrities. She was very understanding. She was. I mean, that probably happens on Studio 10 all the oh. time. I mean, they get very excited there. And that show goes forever. They're not allowed to take a toilet break, you know? Also, a bag of urine does make an interesting guest when you're short. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, dear me. And so, like, how are you feeling now? Well, I'm very, very... Ex- this is actually the first time I've been on stage since that night, so oh, I'm very, yeah. very happy to like, be here. Just, don't, just... don't get too close to the edge. I know, I just feel like... Is this a triggering thing for you? Are a little you okay bit, but being... I have to say the stage manager crew <laughs> seem to be a little more on the ball tonight. <laughs> than the Turkish yes. cruise I can't believe yes. so. This is a failed scissor lift. Is it, is it fault for this situation? For legal reasons. Oh. Uh. We don't know if it's a human error... Or a mechanical fault. <laughs> but I tell you what, Lee, I'm looking forward to finding out. <laughs> and owning this theatre. No, it'll be fab- No. No, no, no. no. Oh, but if you want, <laughs> we'll just work out, we could park the cruise ship at the front of the beach house. It'll be fabulous. <laughs> It'll be wonderful. Perfect. Absolutely Listen, because perfect. we haven't caught up with you for a couple of years, and like obviously yes. the last so much few months happened. have been so incredibly eye-popping, mm. but like also you became an international superstar yes. at that yes, time, which that is the happened. other achievement. Well, so I like, always was, but nobody else knew, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's like so. the memo went lost in the mail for a while, and then suddenly everybody got it. Yes, exactly. And I actually think that happened just... I went on AGT just before... Well, this theatre came down and our show because that was the night. I don't know if anybody else was here. That was the day the Barnaby Joyce Vicky Campion scandal broke, and I was so excited. And I think that <laughs> night, if memory serves me right, I did sing on this stage, Papa Don't Preach. <laughs> Fabulous. You did. Fabulous. That's right. I'd that was one that. of those nights you just went, Thank God for Barnaby. <laughs> oh my God. Well, it's a problem for the accordion. You're going to have to take up something that where you don't need to be. The cello, maybe. The cello. I've, I've could, heard you've exactly. done the cello. You've right. learned my mother tongue, which is yeah, what you're on the, what's yeah. the, the, the Duolingo. Duolingo. Yeah, I just got yes. benched by Duolingo about 24 hours ago. I've dropped out of the major league because I failed oh. to rehearse 10 minutes oh. a day or something. Oh. It sends increasingly needy texts. Auf Deutsch. And uh, now I've been sort of shrugged, yeah. So now However, you're on my level. <laughs> <laughs> so what about that? Because I looked up, I, I searched you on Google and the first drop-down question was, yes. is Hans really German? Oh. And I wonder... There's a lot of doubters in my life, I have to say. This is, you know, a lot of people, people try to say that I'm Australian. I don't know. I'm like the Pavlova, you know? People are always trying to claim me. This is what happens when somebody becomes big, you know? I'm like Russell Crowe. But with talent. It's fabulous. And looks. And looks. I mean, look. Three months in a Turkish hospital. I mean, still looking great. Let's be real. Looks 10 tonight. My gosh. 
Well, we're in the fortunate position of knowing that we own you absolutely you because do. we know that you're devoted to us and the cult and we could not be more completely committed to you and every sequin on your And so relieved body. that we, you know, I know we were horsing around before, but oh my God, we were horrified when oh, the news came Lee, through. I'm just doing this so I can get on Australian <laughs> story. Let's be real. Let's be real. Come on. You want people to tune in, don't you? I mean, come on, Lee! <laughs> Deutschland story, it'll be fabulous. It'll be great. We'll have to go on to SBS for that night, but it'll be wonderful. Do you know what? This has just given me this sudden sinking feeling of horror at how many people are going to come up to me and go, you know, we should have an Australian story. Me. It'll be a nice change from your last role where people kind of avoided you. You know, yes. (laughs) It's kind of good having people scared of you, though. Trust me, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Should see my grinder profile. My gosh. They're running the other way. They are. Mine too. (laughs) That was you? Oh, my God. Oh, dearie me. Okay, and that's the show for tonight. Yes. Sorry, I don't normally reach this level of face hurtiness for about another 40 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, no, seriously, we were super relieved that you were all right. Thank you. And you know, other people sent flowers. These two (laughs) sent a whole rainforest, okay? It was was like a mafia funeral in my house. (laughs) I had the hay fever. I hadn't even gone outside. It was... (laughs) Pass me the tail fast, Jesus. There was a dead fish in the middle of that arrangement. <laughs> and also Hans gave me these beautiful earrings tonight. And they, and they match my brooch. outfit so beautifully. Yeah, yeah. It's oh, true. Very, know, you spoil us. Yeah. yeah, I do. Really? I'm actually applying to be a makeup artist on Australia's <laughs> story as well. We'll go. I think that'd be great. Get ready for well, a I'm subtle looking, approach. I think we... <laughs> We need a new look. I think you do, you do. It's given its Australian story. I think if we just added some corks on that hat, we'd be set. Don't you think? I could, you know, where the bloody hell are you? Perfect, <laughs> there you are. That's Australian. Right, well, Hans. That, what, that's it? What else? <laughs> what are you going to do if I'm not here on this stage? Really? We've got some novels to get through. Oh, and some great. Podcasts. That'll be me. See you. But it, it's not going to be a fast exit, though. So we it's need to It's not going to be like... a fast exit, okay? So please applaud for a very, very long time. Are we doing it now? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Lee, Annabelle, Hamaj, Hamaj. Thank you, guys. Oh, no, please, my love, my love. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. I found them. I found them. The two men that are here. Hello, boys. I'll see you on the grinder. Bye, boys. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh. No, he's right, though. We should just go home, really. That's it. I just had a terrible thought. Like, oh, God, I hope the first thing on the rundown isn't something really earnest and serious. I can't even remember, mate. No, I, it's, 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 it's you and, and your podcast. Oh, it's me, my podcast. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, yes. 
Um, right. Well, this is a bumpy transition, isn't okay. it? it now if we, need, we need one of those like sunrise segues. We need like an ad break or something. An what we actually need right now is a super kooky weatherman. No, I, know yeah. what we need. I know what we need. We need. Um, what does anyone know? What time it is? What time it is? Be about seven forty-five. So okay, seven fifty-two. You're losing 752. it, mate. You're losing it. <laughs> yeah. I, three months ago, Five you would have known leave. exactly what time it was. So what we needed after that was, well, it's seven fifty-two here in Adelaide, and. And then you just move on. And I've been listening to a really interesting <laughs> podcast. I have been, though. I'm not even making that up. So I went to do an event at the Wheeler Centre two weekends ago to celebrate. I thought there was a bird. It isn't. It? It's a lovely baby. I'm like, someone's brought a parakeet. That's like, I mean, people bring unusual things, but um, no, that's okay. We've got you. Fully supportive. Thought it was a bird. I, isn't. I ours, our kids are all in the wings very yeah, close by. And so I'm fully... When I heard that, my radar went up because yeah, I was like, well, what are they doing? Yeah, you think yeah. your kid They're on the is the one who would actually form a trapeze and oh. like swing out over there and we'd be like, who's... Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm reckoning they might be distracted by Hans. So yeah. I'm hoping that's... That's a pretty good bet, I think. Anyway, sorry, your podcast. Uh, yeah, so I've been listening to a podcast that I was told about at the event two weeks ago that I was about to very interestingly tell you about, um, which was for Helen Garner's 80th birthday. Clang! Well, the Wheeler Centre put on this huge kind of 80th birthday thing. It was... Um, emceed by Virginia Gay, Jennifer Down, this year's Miles Franklin winner, gave a little speech beforehand. I'm sitting there next to Garner in the front row. I can see her little knuckles whitening because she hates attention of any kind. And I'm like, there's pretty much a marching band and then like, you know, (laughs) catamites and, you know, um, no, no actual catamites. And, um, and anyway, just realised that I've fallen absolutely short of my rock-hard commitment to not start anecdotes too early anymore. Um, Anyway, uh, (laughs) that conversation went very well, and afterwards I had a recommendation to listen to a podcast that is um, called Once Upon a Time in Bennington College. And did anyone read The Secret History by John Tart years and years ago? This is a podcast that is about the real story behind that novel and that was set in a kind of fictitious college called Hampton College in Vermont and it was this sort of um, centred around this group of slightly unusual people studying classic Greek all of all but one of whom got together and murdered the other one and then the story I mean the murder you know about from the first page and then you know you, you read the story of the murder as you work through this incredibly long book and I read it when I was at university in a share house about, I don't know, 500 metres from here. And it was such a gripping book. I mean, it was so full of suspense and charm that my then housemate, Rachel Healy, and I actually bunked off uni one day to sit there in opposing armchairs with copies of this book and just silently reading it. <laughs> and then we would occasionally stop for breaks and cross-examine each other about our comprehension, like, you know, what is Julian's niece's name and, you know, all that sort of thing. Anyway, Sounds so... Sounds like a ball. <laughs> it's kind of a great book. I mean... Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I've loved it. Great. I just would have hated to be interrupted like that when I was reading it. Sure. Well, that, there's a reason why we didn't room together in college, Lee Sales. Um, but anyway, so this podcast, which was recommended to me by a fantastic woman that I met on that Helen Garner evening called Elena, she said, oh, you've got to listen to this podcast. And it is 
about the college. The real-life college is called Bennington College, and it's in Vermont, and it's physically very similar to the one described in The Secret History. And it has this sort of weird sort of stack of alumni, um, including Brett Easton Ellis, who was there at the same time as Donna Tartt. Wow. And so this podcast presenter goes back, Lily Annelick is her name, she goes back and interviews all of these people who were at college at the same time as Brett Easton Ellis and, and Donna Tartt and finds all of these people who, on whom the characters in the secret history are based. But the, I know. So Julian, the kind of classics tutor, who's the sort of, you know, Svengali figure, you know, in the book, um, is actually based on a real-life character who had actually a lot of the similar attributes of Julian in the book. But the weird thing is that Donna Tartt wasn't actually in the classics group that studied with this Svengali character. She was going out with a guy who studied in that group, and she seems to have totally milked him for intel (laughs) about what life was like in the classics group and then written a novel after she broke up with him. Which is like, that's hardcore. That's how it works, isn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's the ultimate kind of like, wow, can I have that? I'm going to help myself. Um, yeah. And when you go through the interviewees for this podcast, I've got to say the first sort of three to four episodes in the series are actually about Brett Easton Ellis, a writer about whom I literally could not possibly conceivably care less. So I am um, kind of like, ugh. I'm like, give me the tart detail. I can't wait for the secret history. And I had to slog through a fair bit of Brett Easton Ellis. If you're listening, I would say just go straight to the tart detail about episode four um, because Brett Easton Ellis, I don't know, could you be bothered? Well, I've not read any of his books, I must admit, so probably not. I've read a few. I'd never read, you know, the controversial one because I just thought it was, I don't know, I was yawning a bit by that stage. But... um, there's, when I was reading, um, uh, I went and reread The Secret History while I was listening to the podcast, and I read this absolutely fantastic, terrible review of um, Brett Easton Ellis's book of essays, which is called White, which was published a few years back. I'm just going to read a tiny little bit of it because, like, sometimes, I mean, I don't, I don't take unalloyed joy in horrible reviews, but every now and again, somebody really <laughs> deserves it. <laughs> so um, this review is, um, was published in book form and here it goes. The thesis of White is that American culture has entered a period of steep, perhaps irreversible decline and social media and millennials are to blame. This is ridiculous, not because social media hasn't changed things tremendously, but because such claims are invariably rooted in a childish nostalgia for an uncomplicated mode of human communication that has never, in fact, existed. One supposes that the last free-thinking men of ancient Sumer, lamenting that cuneiform had ruined their political discourse, must have longed for the good old days of throwing rocks at each other's heads. That's by Angela Longchu in uh, Andrea Longchu in um, Book Forum Savage, and you just love to see that kind of horrific power unleashed upon some other writer. Um, <laughs> elsewhere, she writes, mostly Ellis hates social media and wishes millennials would stop whining and quote pull on their big boy pants end quote. An actual quote from this deeply needless book. 
whose existence, one assumes, we could all have been spared if Ellis's millennial boyfriend had simply shown the famous man how to use Twitter's mute feature. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, before you actually step in and say something, um, I, I kind of, listening to this sort of history of this shared experience at this crazy liberal arts college in Vermont. It kind of just reminded me of my own university days very close to here, you know, at the University of Adelaide. And I think that one of the weird things about that period of life for me is that I went through university with a whole bunch of people who ended up becoming politicians, which I didn't really kind of register at the time. But now when I look back, I think that is an unusually high proportion of people that I, you know, met at university, particularly at law school, who ended up becoming politicians. No, no murders in the group? or <laughs> No, exactly, no. And in fact, one of the weird things about that podcast, they interview the guy who was Bunny, who's the character who was killed. He's still alive, totally fine, a bit puzzled about having been killed off in this novel, <laughs> written by a girl that was like, he didn't really know, but he was dating this guy from his Greek class, you know. But it seems a bit though, like, because what... what uh... <laughs> yes, Lee. I'm a bit puzzled because, so do we definitely know, so she went out with the guy that's in the group, so basically the premise of it is a liberal arts college, but then the rest of it sounds like it's just, she's vaguely borrowed from that as a setting for like a kind of intriguing... No, 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 there's heaps of, like the characters are pretty clearly identifiable, so, and they're all a bit puzzled because they didn't all know her particularly well, and... I don't know, there's these sort of quite extraordinary parallels. It's so interesting because if this was written today, it'd be that cat lady story where someone would be outraged because they'd be like, well, that's my story and you should be cancelled because how dare you misappropriate my life story. Well, maybe. I think back then they all just seemed to have gone, well, crying in a bucket, that's a bit unusual. Um, (laughs) That seems to be me. They would have, yeah. I'm not dead. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been listening to a very interesting podcast too, which is, it's called Ben Robert Smith versus the Media. The Guardian has done it. We've got a real like... Do you know, because I'm the greatest idiot in the world, I didn't even know that like... Is it just because I've been doing a bit of gardening? I'm 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 actually not sure how I came across it, to be honest. But anyway, it's basically you know. I'm very interested in that case. You know, with these long-running stories, it's it can be really hard to keep track because to me that story feels like it's been running for about 25 years. It just feels like that court case went for so long. And so, what this podcast has done is it kind of distills. It's it's over now, isn't it? But they were waiting waiting for the judgment, right? Which should I'm really hoping that like the. Chris Dawson one that it's broadcast because we spent an entire day listening to that judgment. It was Did so anybody l- else listen to that Chris Dawson judgment? Like, it's I'm, really interesting. So I'm I hoping was, the Ben Robert Smith one is because yeah. listening to the podcast, the, there's so many layers of complexity to the case. Anyway, what they've done is they've had clearly got the transcripts of what's happened in court and they've hired actors who read, there's still a reporter's voice, but then they have actors narrating large slabs of exchange. So someone plays Arthur Moses, who's one of Ben Robert Smith's lawyers, Bruce McClintock, who's another of his lawyers. Uh, Somebody else plays the lawyer for nine media and uh and then pe- someone's ben robert smith and someone's his wife and various other soldiers and so forth and so it really you're hearing it in their exact words from the court but it's kind of distilling all of the taking out all of the boring extraneous stuff that if for anyone who's ever sat in a court taking case out all the allegedly's <laughs> no all the allegedly's are still there so it's very very interesting and what's I found it all really fascinating, but the episode that really was riveting to me was episode three, which is called The Affair, and it's about 
this evidence that was introduced in the case, which is that Ben Robert Smith had, um, and, well, it was actually in the paper, but that Ben Robert Smith had an affair. And the reason that it's relevant, that Nine argues it's relevant, is because it goes to the question of character and his uh, propensity to lie and so forth. And so uh, his wife, who, from whom he's now separated, and also the woman with whom he was having the affair, each had to take the stand. And it made me think about often things in life, you either understand how humans act because you act that way yourself or you might know somebody who's some certain things happen to but to actually be you know have an intimate experience of you know say an affair you have to have had an affair so you have to have either been a married person having an affair or you have to have been a mistress on the side or you have to have been a wife who's been cheated on to really understand what that's like so you might read about it in a, a novel's about the closest we might get to understanding you know another human being's experience whereas what this is doing is because they have all of the contemporaneous text messages that went on between people they have phone calls and accounts of meetings from multiple from each of the parties involved in it and so it's an absolutely fascinating snapshot into human psychology and the ways the weird ways that we can sometimes act um, and so I found it like just utterly utterly riveting and then the other episodes are about things that occurred in the battlefield and so they'll have various other soldiers accounts and then Ben Roberts Smith under cross-examination discussing what happened so if it's a story that you have been following in and out of the media and I'd say from the sounds of the audience people probably have opinions about it it's good it's a good one to listen to because you actually are hearing the person's words in the court now they are it's not the same as sitting across the whole case because obviously a journalist has made a choice about what to include but it's certainly a more representative account than what you might see if you just read a newspaper story of a court case all that stuff though it's like the relationship form of big data isn't it because i mean you know 20 years ago court cases particularly defamation cases wouldn't have worked like that because you wouldn't have the trackability and accessibility of all of that like massive information Mm. so surely surely that stuff then that climate must feed in now to whether people initiate defamation action like because you know I mean the case is essentially about you know did person X get pushed off a cliff, you know, well, and, and in Afghanistan like, and you ended up sort of outside an abortion clinic, you know, in Queensland or whatever. I mean, I think there's a tendency in human life as well to, you know, when we all do it, it's human nature where you... Human memory, life as opposed to rabbit life where it yeah. never happens. <laughs> your memory um, causes you to view things a certain way. And so I'm sometimes shocked where I'll realise later, you know, I'll be presented with absolute evidence that, you know, I was wearing a green shirt or something and I'll think, oh my God, I swore I wore that. The night you killed that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you mem- you're like, oh, I can't believe it. I had an absolutely classic one recently in Brisbane where I'd gone up to... Um, see my family and I woke up on the Sunday morning which was the day I was leaving and I thought oh my god I've lost my handbag and I went hunting all around for it and I rang my brother and I'm retracing my steps and and all I could find was my keys and my phone and I thought oh I know what I think I've done because most days now I just go places with keys and a phone I thought I reckon I've put it under a table and left my keys and my phone on you know just take my keys and phone and left it anyway my girlfriend who I'd been spending most of the time with Melissa I rang and said oh mate is my handbag in your car I've lost my handbag it's got my house keys in it my purse in it da, da, da. anyway Melissa said oh no and I said look I just this, there's this slight there's this, there's this there's a massive payoff coming <laughs> yeah, I hope and trust I'm so deep into this story now and I feel like oh god I haven't told what else did Melissa say 
<laughs> so um, I said to Melissa, I've got, I've got this just... I, I'm, I'm certain I brought it with me from Sydney, but I've just got this tiny bit of doubt, like, what if I didn't bring it? So can you describe it to me? Because I'd been with Melissa a lot. She went, you absolutely brought it. It's a large kind of cream-coloured... Diabolical mum bag. ...tote bag, you know, blah, blah. And she t- and it's full I mean, of pegs and face cream. She said, <laughs> she said, I swear you came out of the airport, you had it in my car. And I said, okay, well, that, that is exactly my bag. So you've seen it, so it's been up here. So then it prompted this massive two-hour schlep around. <laughs> my brother's a formal, former federal agent. I didn't trust that he'd searched his house properly. I went around to search it myself. <laughs> I went running around everywhere I'd been and then on the way home I pulled the car over because I'd been in Brisbane I should add two weeks earlier as well and I rang Melissa and pulled I pulled over and I said I'm just going to float this theory to you and Melissa had spent two hours as well have you tried this have you thought about this I said I'm just going to float this theory to you is it possible that you and I are conflating the two recent trips and that you saw that crane bag on the earlier trip and so, therefore, you could describe it accurately, but I never actually brought it with me. <gasps> and we sat there. I was sitting in my car. She was at her house, and she went, just let me think about this for a second. And she said, look, it's possible, but I would swear that you have had it with you this weekend. Anyway, I went back to my mother's house, and so I just thought, okay, think, think, think. I just feel like this is such a stupid story. <laughs> but I'm so deep into it now that I've just got to keep going. Just got to and keep then the waiting. Whole and then the whole show's going to be over. And now I'm getting fused at all on this story. Everyone will be leaving just going, well, that was weird, wasn't it? Yes, it was weird. So It sounded like it was going to take a turn for the interesting and then it just never did. <laughs> I've driven back to my mother's and I've gone, okay, think, think, think. Think like yourself. If you didn't bring... If you, Massive ask. If you were in Sydney... <laughs> and you were thinking you weren't going to bother to take your actual handbag, what you had to have locked the house when you left because you have to lock the front door. What would you have done with the house keys if you didn't have your handbag to put them into? And so I'm like, okay, okay. I would have... I wouldn't have left my purse because I might have thought I might have needed a Medicare card or something. So I think I would have put them in my suitcase. I go into the spare room at my mother's house. I open my suitcase. There they are. So I... So... I rang Melissa and went, mate, I never brought it. And then when I got back to Sydney, I, t- I just texted her a photo of the bag on the table in Sydney. And we were both so freaked out because we were like, I would have absolutely small. It really rattled us at the way that our memories had lied to us. <laughs> How is long service leave going? <laughs> service leave and yesterday I lost my bag (laughs) I'm not even making this up so I had to go and do a talk because why I don't know but I had I had agreed to do this talk on the other side of town at like 8 30 a.m or something stupid 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 (laughs) why did I agree to do that stupid anyway we had some people around for pizza my amazing new pizza oven. Oh, yeah. I didn't put the people in the oven, obviously. The pizzas were in the oven. Right? And um, then kind of went to bed thinking, oh, supposed to have written a speech for this thing. Uh, lay awake there, like, making notes. And like, yeah, yeah, no, it's all right. I know what I'm doing. And then the next morning got up at, you know, 5.30, did kids' breakfasty stuff, and then like, was going to leave at, like, 7.15 or something. All sorted, dressed, Pants on, shoes on, 
all good. I'm like, I'm on time. And I'm like, where's my handbag? Screamed around the house, getting increasingly panicky. Where's my notebook? Where's my handbag? Couldn't find it anywhere. And then I'm like, we've been robbed. We've been robbed. We've been robbed. Robbed. I'm not accusing anyone who was here for pizza. Obviously, they wouldn't have done that. Good people. But also, house was open. Robbed. Robbed by an opportunist. Where was it? I'm texting Jeremy. Where is it? And I was just like, oh, everything's, oh, God, Medicare cards, things like that. And I ran off with his um, work satchel thing with, like, speech in it, no pen. Like, oh, it was a disaster. Anyway, and then he texts me 20 minutes later. He's like, I found it. Done the side of the bed. Uh-huh. Like, I, where I'd put it. Oh, dear. I mean, absolutely no wriggling out of that one, but, like, absolutely certain of the robbery. <laughs> Can I just apologise for these handbag stories and make up for it? I oh, know there's so many with, more though. With the crown, <laughs> I'm going to talk about the crown because has anyone watched binge the whole thing? Oh, okay. Hey, handbags and the crown. There's, there's no spoilers. A... Okay. Oh, no, spoil- no spoilers. Diana dies. <laughs> she really does. Sorry, love. Yeah. Um, okay. There was a much better handbag segue to the crown than that. Oh yeah, true. Like remember there when you a... interviewed me as a handbag yeah, expert on the crowns yeah. and uh, on the queen, and I was like, sure, I'll come on seven thirty and talk about the queen and handbags. But like, I don't really know about that. And then later, you realised that it was Gwen that had told you <laughs> yeah. all this detail about the handbags. Illustrating my point about memories being very deceptive. Right. So. And I was like. Puzzled. I love the fact that I still did what you asked. Oh, can I just, just sorry, thinking, can, I don't just, know anything about this. Before I talk this. about the crown, can I actually just tie that back to what I was going to say about memories in relation yes, to texting can. and court? You absolutely can. People yeah. go, um, well, no, I never really found him that attractive ever. And they'll sorry, allow who? me to read you. The, I'm just using an example. In oh. a court case, people will go, well, I never found him attractive. And they'll go, well, allow me to read from your text message that you sent to him on the 9th of August, blah, blah, blah. I find you massively attractive. And they'll oh. Like, it's really, you can't, you know, it's all this contemporaneous evidence. So the lesson like is... taking a cross-section of a human life. And, of course, you mm. don't remember things that way because all you remember is your, yeah. you know, your consolidated you impression of that person. Exactly, or what you choose to remember, basically. Well, so the crown, okay. So um, here's, what, here's my take. <laughs> I think that one of the big issues with The Crown is when they change cast, I reckon it takes about two episodes to adapt to the new cast. It's really jarring. I was with the Melda Staunton straight away. Were you? Yeah. I thought the wig was a bit much. That was a wig? <laughs> it was slightly too exaggerated, I thought. Anyway, I, I, I didn't mind Jonathan Price. Melda Staunton, I took a little while to kind of warm to. I haven't really liked anyone as much as Claire Foy, I must admit. So, um, so um, there's nothing wrong with the Melistorted. <laughs> anyway, um, I thought Dominic West was massively miscast as Prince Charles. Oh, come on. Way miscast. I'm happy to see anybody played by Dominic West, though. Is that, I love Dominic is West, that wrong? but I just think he has got so much presence, and I think that you can't... He moves like an alpha, commanding alpha male, and he does not have any of the physical awkwardness of 
Prince Charles. And so there was a scene where he was Far talking to sales. some group of Prince people. Prince Charles has had a tough life. <laughs> Surely for a tiny sector of the crown, <laughs> he gets to be played by Dominic West. Like, this is the bit where he just gets to go, look at my haunches in that shot. I look amazing. And also, my trapezoids look incredible. <laughs> like, surely, as a little treat for the new king, it's just like, for a tiny piece of time, you're going to be played by Dominic well, I guess West. It you're does, welcome, Your Highness. I guess it does back in the, the you know, statement by the makers of The Crown that it is fiction. So there's a, there was a scene where Dominic West smiled and it was like, you sort of Bewitching. went, well, that's why he's a gigantic movie star and why he's not Prince Charles because he's so, his, his physicality is very commanding. Whereas the, I don't know the actor's name, but the guy who played Prince Charles in the previous thing was absolutely brilliant and really Everybody embodied. here is muttering the answer to the question. Can someone just, huh? Josh, Josh O'Connor. O'Connor. He was absolutely superb. Um, At least somebody prepared for this show. I thought... Second. And it's you... Yes. Oh, drama teacher. There you go. That's exactly the kind of people that we need to <laughs> fill in our patchy research. My oh, sorry, your patchy research. My other um, issue, every, Elizabeth Dibicki has been rightly praised for her portrayal of Diana. But I think the other thing is I didn't find this season as interesting as the others. And I think the reason is because for people of our generation, it's really, really well-known material. So there's no surprises in it. So, for example, when Charles and Camilla are starting to talk on the phone and they're just being a bit lovey-dovey, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Tampon date. Here we go. Yeah. So there's nothing in it that is surprising to you. Whereas the, some of the earlier seasons, I was like, oh my god, did that really happen? That the queen, that someone got into her bedroom, and then you Google it. Yeah, it did. Oh my god. So do you know there's only probably... really one person who has been feeling that way the whole time, and that's the queen. <laughs> right. I mean, that is the thing with all the people like in the last series going, yeah. oh well, I sort of knew that stuff already. <laughs> well. Yeah, one viewer <laughs> yeah, one probably viewer, has been true. feeling that since day dot. But I, um, I was thinking as well, geez, Hasnat Khan, Khan must be absolutely just really frustrated that his name's back again. Because, you know, I Googled him and he's just working as a heart surgeon somewhere. Now, all of a sudden, everyone who under the age of, you know, 40 who'd never heard of him oh, now suddenly, yeah. oh, my God, he was Diana's boyfriend. That would be a nightmare. Um, but if you are interested in, because uh, there's been this controversy about whether or not it is historically accurate and various people have weighed in to say how outrageous it is. There's a podcast called The News Agents, which is a, f- a few journos who used to be BBC journos, Emily Maitlis and John Sopel and another guy and they have an episode of the pod where they interview Tina Brown and they talk about well how accurate actually is it and so that's if you're interested in that it is um it is interesting but look I watched all 10 episodes no worries whatsoever um and it's it's ticks all the it's beautifully shot it's engaging it's great locations um Jonathan Price, as I said, was great. Uh, it's enjoyable. Can I, I mean, I know that we've just said, like, well, we know all this stuff, but am I the only person that just either did not register or forgot the connection between Dodie Al-Fayed and Chariots of Fire? I didn't know that, yeah. I didn't know that either. Did, I mean, I wondered as well, did we need all of the backstories of the Al-Fayeds? Like, do you think? Yeah, I thought so. Okay. Yeah. Well, because I just felt like they were kind of just it was sort of incidental that she was with them when she was killed in the car accident the main thing is just the fact that she was killed in a car accident really do we need to know where how Muhammad Al-Fayed grew up and but don't you think that that whole um idea about this like resistance from the monarchy um and from the establishment not just in Britain but in France 
to having this sort of Aravist wealthy foreigner buying into national icons, you know, like the Ritz or Harrods or whatever. I mean, the reception that he got was actually quite a significant part of the story, I thought. I... I thought it didn't. I thought it wasn't relevant to the spine of the narrative, which is that I think that's interesting. But I think for this particular story, in the limited amount of time that you've got, that it's not really of that much interest because the, the central narrative is that she doesn't fit into the royal family. And I reckon in one scene you could have conveyed that she met them and that they were also outsiders and problem solved. When Lee Sales declares a spine. <laughs> It's an orthopedic fact. <laughs> anyway, I did, I, did, um, I did enjoy it, but I just uh, I didn't love it as much as some of the other seasons. All right, well, I smashed through it very, very quickly and then was disappointed when it was over, which is always a good sign. Okay, that, so you know, you'd loved it. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I loved it in the way that I've loved every single series of that, that television show. It's just sort of incredibly expensive, let's face it. It's just expensive. <laughs> and sometimes yeah. expensive television is just like, oh, it's like getting into a bath of crystal. You're like, is this the best bath ever? I don't know, but it costs like $25,000. So it's feeling pretty damn sparkly. Now, can I just briefly tell you about two other quality British dramas? One's um, about to come QBDs, out. yeah. <laughs> One's about to yes, come out. Called, yeah. It's called A Spy Among Friends. It's about Kim Philby and his friend Nicholas Elliott. I've talked Ooh. about this book on the podcast by Ben McIntyre. There's a mini series about to come out with Guy Pearce's Kim Philby and um, what's Homeland Ooh. Guy's name? Damien Lewis is um, oh, Nicholas Elliott. And it's just a Damien very Lewis great... Damien Lewis is the greatest. It's, he's he's excellent. also Billions Man, right? Billions Guy, yeah. He's excellent in this. And it's just, if you like that kind of thing, it's a very well done, high-end thing if you like that book as well. Now, something that I was really disappointed in, has anyone watched Inside Man? Oh, <gasps> you didn't like it? No. So... It was... Sorry. Sorry. There's going to be an ugly scene. Yeah, so it was... Um, okay, it had great promise. It stars David Tennant and Stanley Tucci, two great, great actors. Oh, look and at so that. Like, this is the mood of the crowd. The is first, this going to be a Tucci scene? The first 20 to 40 minutes was excellent. And because you kind of... So David Tennant is a priest who's living in a kind of small town in England. And Stanley Tucci is this guy on death row in the US. And Stanley Tucci is this like kind of freakishly intelligent dude who people come to... The governor of the prisoners, prison is mates with him and people come to Stanley Tucci to solve unsolvable murders. They lay out the scenario and he goes, well, you know, you need to do this and do that and da-da-da-da-da. And so he's got this kind of freakish brain. And so you're thinking, well, how on earth are they connecting David Tennant to Stanley Tucci in this? And so it's kind of intriguing immediately, but then very, very rapidly the plot jumps the shark. It's a series of, um, I guess, unfortunate coincidences and mishaps that befall David Tennant and he gets stuck in this really awkward and difficult situation but the problem is it just grows increasingly increasingly implausible to the degree that I I got to a point where I felt like occasionally I would laugh aloud and I thought this would actually be really excellent if they had directed it as a black comedy and everyone was playing it not straight everyone was playing it really straight but if they had actually dialed it up like say the film Misery where it's just actually comical because it's so ludicrous. Um, Keep in mind this critique is coming from a woman who just gave us 25 minutes on I lost my handbag (laughs) (laughs) So yeah I was um, I was very disappointed (laughs) I watched it to the end but by like episode 3 I was like oh for fuck's sake (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's just 
ping, Tucci in your inbox. <laughs> Definitely a Chat Town listener. <laughs> we'll shortly find out. I love Stanley Tucci. Fair enough. Well, that's not enough to say that and now, David is it, really? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, is, it, is it okay to go back to podcasts? Because sure. I've been listening to a really interesting podcast actually for about a, six weeks or so. Like, I've been long-term listening to this podcast and I haven't talked about it to you before, but I feel like now that I've finished it, the moment is here. It's like, it's not a funny one. It's a really full-on one. Um, it's called The Letter. Has anyone been listening to this no, God, there's no, mm, ooh, ah. this is a virgin audience for the letter. So it's, this podcast is about, um, it concerns a young guy um, who was shot dead while he was having a picnic with his girlfriend in like Salt Lake City or like in a park and completely out of nowhere. And this guy just shot the two of them, he died. She survived, went to hospital, recovered, and it was a full, like, covered in the press at the time, it was in 1996, um, as a thrill killing. And the, um, and the gunman, whose name was uh, George Benvenuto, um, went to prison for life. And the parents um, of Zach Snar, who was the kid who was killed, just went through exactly what you would expect so just very close family this great kid suddenly murdered for no reason whatsoever grief anger just bitterness um a criminal trial that involved both of the parents of the um the murdered boy just feeling every kind of rage against this monster who had completely wantonly destroyed their lives and they battle on like that for decades and this podcast um, really talks through that family like what they went through and they had other tragedies that happened and then many 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 years later the guy who'd killed their son wrote them a letter from prison and somehow like they'd been through all of these attempts to sort of reconcile themselves to what had happened and to think about radical forgiveness and all that sort of stuff and they couldn't quite manage it and then somehow this letter was timed at a just a split second where they were open to the idea of talking to this fellow from prison and it is i just have found it very affecting to listen to because it doesn't really rush through the story. It really respects this family's experience. And what happens in the end, um, which is... I mean, it's clear from the beginning, so I'm not giving away any sort of particular spoilers, but this incredible reconciliation between this kid who did a terrible, terrible thing 20 years earlier and the family of this person whose life he took away completely wantonly is one of the most profoundly affecting stories and just involves such unthinkable generosity um on the are, part are of all three of them interviewed well the parents of the boy are interviewed um you get to know the um the gunman through the letters and through um, the conversations with the mum is actually the most incredible character in this whole series. Um, and the girl who was shot alongside um, their son 
doesn't have the same kind of journey at all. But um, just to hear them, the story of how they kind of struggled along this sort of rocky path towards this unthinkable forgiveness is just quite an extraordinary thing. Anyway, I found it really moving. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's incredible. <laughs> just yeah, sorry, sorry, I'm not laughing about that. Impossible to um, make a smart-ass remark about that. No, I'm, I'm not like, making yeah, a smart-ass yeah. remark about it. I'm just thinking, wow, that is a seriously impossible segue. Now, now, now what do we do? It really is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and also, we're out of podcast. We're out of podcast. Actually, we're not out of podcast. I it's eight forty-three in Adelaide. And, I know. Yeah. <laughs> how how good was that time was on that? Just uh, eight twenty-nine. Wow, you are I've way off. Lost it. I've lost it. You are on yeah. leave. Um, I've been listening to this other podcast called How Other Dads Dad by Hamish Blake. Oh yeah. Has anyone else been listening to that? It's um, you know, I mean, Hamish Blake is a great broadcaster, so you can pretty much talk to anyone, and it'll be like funny and fabulous, and like he's just such a genuinely nice dude, um, who is exactly the same off screen as he is on screen, and you just like, you know, oh, come and drunkenly bake me a birthday cake, you know, you're adorable, <laughs> but like. He's done this really good podcast, which is just basically Hamish being a dad, asking other dads how they dad, and it's it's pretty straightforward. And um, and the first one is Rob Sitch, who's got like you know, like it's sort of funny people, but it's not designed to be a like a comedy podcast, but it ends up being very enjoyable. But one of the things that I think is really interesting about it, one is that I can't think of that many podcasts undertaken by kind of high profile dudes I mean there's so many podcasts about how to be a good mother there's just like not that many on you know how to be a joyful dad right and it's not sort of super you know um it's not super serious it's just like oh well you know have you tried um you know building a box fort and the kids love that stuff you know <laughs> but um have you tried the beach house yeah that gigantic <laughs> Yes, we well, watched um, Brickmas last night, the first episode of Brickmas, which is the Lego Masters, oh. um, where they do Christmas designs. And so they have a celebrity paired with someone who's been on Lego Masters. Um, yeah, the kids absolutely loved it. I mean, it, I, I absolutely love um, Lego Masters. I think it's a great show and it's a very um, inclusive program. Uh, and the stuff they can build is just got I just love to see the nerds having their day. I do too. That's yeah. why I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, great. Me too. It's great. The only thing like that, the thing that's really interesting about the Dad's podcast is, and it's just so fascinating to me because I'm used to like, I mean, some of the conversations are ones that I hear among like dads that I know. Um, so they're not like unusual conversations. It's just unusual to see them elevated to a kind of like major podcast status. And that's kind of what I like about the, about the format. But the other thing is like, and I haven't listened to all of it, but like, the, the sort of theme of guilt is just almost completely absent from the whole thing. And I, I just, it just makes me think, oh, there's a better way of parenting where you don't feel guilty all the time. Like, it's, like, it's so interesting, isn't it? It's so it, funny you say that because in the back of my head's running that I feel guilty and my, my kid's going to blame me when they grow up that, oh, our mum used to do a show on stage and we just were left out the back to our own devices. Which is actually exactly what's happening right now. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm guessing that mine have probably gone through my handbag which is here tonight and got my phone and I bet you they've just been on that vending machine out there just and then I won't say anything because I feel guilty so I'll be like well they you left them out the back alone so they would eat 28 tons of cheesels they oh I think it's a burger rings night (laughs) (laughs) but isn't that funny I mean I just think oh actually that is an 
aspirational goal for not just male parents listening but female parents to just like oh you know yeah have a conversation that doesn't involve you going oh god i'm so terrible and here's why <laughs> can we talk about books a bit before we run out of time yeah sure okay um uh you know how i did that um helen garner birthday thing Clang! um where she was very interesting by the way and wheeler center's put up the um podcast of that exchange it was right. really like she was in good form good form and like Helen Garner, 80 years old. Oh, my God, she's got us. Um, she was introduced by Jennifer Down, whose novel Bodies of Light, which won the Miles Franklin this year, I only just read because, I don't know, I feel like I read all the time. I say this all the time, but I read all the time, and yet I still am like, sorry, what? What won the what? Oh, I haven't read that. Do you find that? Um. <laughs> like, have no, you read just, Bodies no, of Light I'm by just, Jennifer Down? I'm just thinking. No, I haven't. No, I'm thinking. It's no. really, really good. It's and I'm reading it going like, but this is, this is a tremendous book. And like, every person in Australia is like, yes, that's why it won the Miles Franklin. No, I'm just thinking, I, I, used to re- I used to pay attention to what was winning the awards and then I've stopped doing that for some reason. So I'm not, I'm not really sure why. Yeah. But, so no, anyway, I, I, I do Terrific book. Who knew? But I did. But I, I did actually pick up something that was on the front table at Dimmicks as part of their. You know, when Christmas is coming, there's just gigantic piles of the things they think people are going to buy. So I picked up this book called The Ink Black Heart by Robert Galbraith, and. The only reason that it, <laughs> there's a bit of a <laughs> the reason it drew my attention was because not the only visitor to that bench of opportunistic Christmas sales <laughs> items, evidently. No, we'd been talking about massively selling books in a podcast that we did recently and I was saying how I hadn't read any of the Harry Potter books and Robert Galbraith is the nom de plume of JK Rowling writing adult fiction and they're these like crime thriller books and so I thought oh I haven't read any Harry Potter so maybe I'll just start with like one of the we'll adults straight to the shitty I'll start straight to the, crime to the, fiction. To the pulp fiction stuff <sighs> so my first issue is it was I, know, I feel like being really negative tonight, but anyway, it was a thousand pages long, which is a just gigantic deterrent to me normally, so I don't know why I picked it up. I think because I thought, well, everyone says about the Harry Potters that they're really, you can't put them down, the plot moves you forward, so I thought it'll be plot driven, maybe it'll just carry me along. It was also small print. Um, it was plot driven, and so I did read the entire thing, but I was just resenting it so badly because the amount of time that it takes to read, that, so that book is literally all I've read since we last recorded a podcast because... And you hated it. And I didn't really like it. So, but because it was basically a whodunit, you just can't stop reading it because you want to know who the person is. So basically the gist of it is these two people who run a private detective agency. Well, listen, she's just speaking through gritted fangs, isn't she? <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to give it to you straight. It's the, the bloke's name's Cormorant Strike. Uh, and the okay, well, sorry, that should just be Cormorant Strike. Yeah. <laughs> See, that should be a reason for just discreetly putting it strike. aside. Everyone calls him Strike. He's had a leg blown off in the Afghanistan war and now he's a private detective. You know, he's a hard-bitten, you know, blah, blah. Uh, and the woman... Drinking problem? Drinking problem on aisle two? And the woman is named Robin Ellicott. And, so, but, and they're kind of secretly in love with each other, but they can't act on it because otherwise their business will be you know, problematic. That so it's other. basically moonlighting. Pretty much. So they're investigating the murder of this woman called 
Edie Ledwell, who has written this cartoon called The Ink Black Heart. It's a YouTube cartoon that's massively, massively popular. But what's happened is she's been viciously trolled on social media and has then been found murdered. And so they're trying to uncover who's done it. And there's this person who's the kind of ringleader of the trolls online called Anomi, and they're trying to uncover what's the actual identity of Anomi. The other thing that happens in this book, along with the kind of narrative of what's going on, is they periodically drop into these three streams of simultaneous chat room discussions that are going on on the social media network that talks about the Ink Black Heart, this game, which is really difficult to follow because you're like, well, should I try to simultaneously read all three conversations or should I do one from start to finish? Or... I actually hate this in books. It's, I it's just, absolutely exhausting. It's like being in an escape room. I just like want to just yeah. die. So... J.K. Rowling swears that it was the first draft was done before she started being the subject of really vicious online trolling and real-life death threats and so on. But you can't help but read it and go, well, it just seems awfully kind of close to what you've experienced. And it feels like she's drawing on her own experience of social media in the book, but she does dispute that. Um, so anyway, I've done the heavy lifting for you all <laughs> and reading that book. But those books are gigantically popular. So I went, went and had a look to see, well, are people reading these? It's 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 one of a series of about Corma and Strike, um, and they've all sold There's really more. well. Yeah, they've all sold really well. And in fact, when they first came out, they just came out under Robert Galbraith, and so and her publisher was sworn to secrecy that no one could say it was J.K. Rowling. And it actually sold quite well before it came out that it was J.K. Rowling. Then, of course, it went completely gangbusters. So, what's the reason for the subterfuge? Oh, just because, like... I have enough money. No, she just wanted to, to see if it, you know, how it would float on its own without her name attached to it. And so they put it out. And I think it sold, like, 10,000 copies, which is really good for a book, before it came out that it was her. Um, so, yeah, I think it was just an experiment, basically, to see, you know, how it would go. And so, yeah... Read one thing, hated it. Lee Sales. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's kind of, I don't know. I, I'm, well, obviously it appeals to, you know, some people. It sold 50,000 in its first month, apparently, so. Can I suggest a few good things to read that I've yes. read? I'm just, I'm reading Marina Hyde at the moment. Look how thick it is, but it's so, so refreshing and completely satisfying. So, does anyone read Marina Hyde's writing about um, British politics in The Guardian? It went through a stage when, you know, British politics was the most incredible bin fire. I mean, this is quite recent, where Marina was the only person I was reading. I was just like, all I want to read is Marina being incredibly, you know, mean and accurate about everybody involved here and now there's a collection of her columns and it is tremendous now you and I have lionised Marina's column about Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt appearing in GQ styles, Brad Pitt in America's National Parks yes. the most ridiculous mistake that Brad Pitt ever made but in terms of her coverage of British politics it is sort of readable and re-readable. I'm just going to read you a tiny little suggestion just so you get the vibe, but there's like hundreds of columns in this book and it's incredibly enjoyable. Um, she wrote in, this is going back to 2016, so you get all of Brexit, all of the recent horrors. Like so many of the big, biggest formats in the golden year of reality TV, Brexit is set on an island. Back in the early years of the millennium, you were nothing in unscripted programming unless you were marooned on an island or 
in a McMansion, then forced to fight your way to the prize by scheming, screaming, demeaning, and not forgetting the lyrics to Dance With My Father. The transatlantic spirit of the age was Simon Cowell, a populist whose love of plebiscites did little to disguise his totalitarian ambition. When he declared, no one is ever going to publish a book called Simon Cowell, My Struggle, I wept for the loss of the German edition. (laughs) She is so funny and somehow just this sort of waspish observing eye that she casts over the ridiculousness of British politics and culture is just massively refreshing. She's been on fire of recent years. She's been actually in flames for years. Do you know anything about her beyond... I know zero about her beyond just reading her columns. Uh, I think she is she's a posh person. She comes from posh people. But she... I think, like, Dad's a lord or something. Like, there's a full posh situation. But is... <laughs> this is my deep research speaking. But just one of these people who's just like, oi. Like, unlike much of, you know, the British aristocracy and associated sort of levels of society completely able to just go you are an idiot sir and like that is the great thing about her i mean sometimes i read her and i think oh wow can you even say that and she's yeah, like she, she can't yes be, i certainly can she can't be writing a column and then on the weekend cozying up to people at parties i wouldn't have thought because she i mean i don't see how you could be writing what she's writing and also the great thing about marina is that she writes a column on politics she writes a column on celebrity and oh. she writes a column on sport how yeah oh she's ridiculously which is what a cry just thinking about that i know and this book um what just happened has got selections of all three of those genres and like, the quality is very consistent even though she's seen some stuff over the years i just think she's very very clever and funny um what else oh also i've read recently um kamala shamsi's new novel best of friends she's a pakistani writer who um was very enthusiastically decorated for her novel home fire this book it's about two friends young women who grow up in karachi and they are like closest bestest friends and then they kind of they're about 15 and then the next you see of them they're in their 40s and they've taken completely different career paths and what the novel explores is are you able so one of them is sort of a venture capitalist and the other one is in a sort of global human rights movement and so the question is do the people with whom you're the greatest, closest friends, like the people you choose when you are children, can you survive a divergence of your interests? And I went to see her speak in Sydney. She's an incredible person to listen to, um, Shamsi. She's like profound, thoughtful, funny, just the most magnetic person to listen to. And she was talking about why she wrote the book and she said that she felt like there weren't enough depictions of female friendship that weren't about sort of fighting about some dude or you know everything went fine until they fell in love with the same guy or whatever and she said something funny she said oh, I, I 
found myself getting angry about the fact that there wasn't more fiction about proper female friendships to whom the biggest problem is never blokes. It's, you know, deeper than that. Um, and she said, then I realised I was annoyed with myself about not having written that novel. So she went out and wrote it. But she said something really interesting about first friendships and old friendships, um, which was that the friendships that you make as a child, you know, at school are the first people that you choose for yourself. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, also, later in life, they are the only people who can remember you as the child of your parents. Definitely. I think about that all the time. Right. My friend Melissa that I was talking about before, one of the few people in my life that you require no detail of any, literally anything in the backstory of my life for 39 years right. because she just knows it all. So that is so amazing to have that. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Although, uh, yeah, it's great, isn't it? Um, I would say um, it's interesting that when you say it's the first choice that you can make for yourself because often with my really good friends, I feel like it wasn't really a choice because I feel like you just get on, you just click, and then you kind of connect and it just feels kind of inevitable once you've become friends with them. But that is a choice. I mean, like... What Camilla said in this talk was they are the first people you think, I'm not friends with you because our parents are friends or I I want to sit next to you because I'm drawn to you for some reason. Right. And that is something that what she was trying to explore in this novel is, is that early instinct and that shared experience, is that invulnerable to really significant divisive forces later in life. Yeah, it's, it, I'm always fascinated by the fact that people that I liked when I was young that I can bump into and still like as an adult. Like, you know, say so people say that I really liked when I was 15 that I might see years later and still just really like their company. I think, God, that's so amazing that there's obviously just something inherent in you as a human that you find appealing. Totally. But, I mean, if you'd become a venture capitalist, would it work in the well, same way? Well, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. know. Maybe you'd just find that person the most interesting venture capitalist that you'd met. I don't know. But don't you think you end up making, like, you, you put a bigger effort into sustaining those older friendships, maybe? Like, when they come under pressure, like, maybe more um, recent friendship ap- acquisitions, you're like, oh, sorry, you seem like a dick. See ya. I th- Yes and no. I think sometimes with the older friends, you feel like, oh, well, I just know that if I don't talk to you all year that it won't, at Christmas, we'll just talk as much as ever. So I think sometimes with the older ones, you just, there's a lot of capital in the bank, so you can kind of, you don't have to keep topping it up. Whereas with newer friends, I often think it can be situational. I can't afford you on a time basis. I'm sorry. (laughs) You've been fabulous. I'm going to have to let you go. No, it can be situational because you might be friends with someone at school drop-off or school pick-up, but if your kids change schools, would you still be friends? You know, it's just a situational friendship. Yeah, yeah, no, that definitely happens. Also, I mean, I like to think that I lightly bully my children into being friends with people whose parents I like. Yeah, (laughs) totally. I'm like, you haven't really chose them. I chose them because their parents are cool. Before we run out of time, two quick things that um, you wanted me, both both you've recommended to me, one I didn't like and one I did really like. The one I didn't really well, like... sounds interesting. The one I didn't really like was a podcast called Everything is Alive. Oh, come on. <laughs> Who doesn't want to hear the thoughts of a bar of soap for 40 minutes? What's wrong with you? So the one I listened to was about a party horn, which is one of those, you oh, know... I haven't heard that one. Rolly whistle. I can't vouch for it. You know, for a party with the... What do you, well, I don't know, they've got multiple names. And it's a tutor, isn't it? A flute, uh, like a party flute. 
I don't know. Um, so it's basically, for anyone who doesn't know the pod, it's somebody interviews an inanimate object and the inanimate object's voiced by an actor who talks about what it's like to be a party flute. And um, somehow your description of it is a little more prosaic and <laughs> unflattering than my description of it originally. To me, it felt like a theatre sports warm-up game that just did not deserve an audience. <laughs> But what I really loved was Better Things, which you recommended to me, which is on Disney Plus. And geez, I had to really drag myself away from that because it's it's that best thing of all, which is a show that someone recommends that you've not been across and then you discover there's five seasons of it. And so I was like, oh, yes. Oh, God, I just loved it so much. It's so funny. You watched the whole five seasons? No, no, I watched one and then I forced myself to move on to do some other stuff. Otherwise, I'd have nothing to talk about except The Ink Black Heart and Better Things. (laughs) 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 And my missing handbag. That was amazing content. And my grinder profile from earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Can I tell you something that I just read on the plane on the way here? Um, I picked up the new, like the summer edition of the monthly, which is like the summer reading edition. And I came across, sorry, there's no reason for me to put that stupid voice on. It's like, it's called the summer reading edition. Um, And there's this absolutely beautiful little only two page story, piece of writing by Laura Tingle about her garden, which is, it's so beautiful. I actually cried when reading it. It's about Laura Tingle's garden that she's been growing, you know, um, at this block that, you know, she's been trying to establish a native garden on for decades and, oh God. Anyway, um, cooch and buffalo grass, mats of clumping weeds such as violets, all prosper frustratingly until my natives are big enough to keep them at bay. Until they do, I put aside my blind terror of funnel webs and redbacks, brown and red-bellied black snakes, and crawl along the ground on my belly under the foliage of grevilleas and banksias, corias and eriostomon, yanking at the weeds with one hand, bracing myself for flight with the other. I just like the idea that Laura Tingle is afraid of anything is just so <laughs> exciting to me. Uh, and then she says, sorry, I'm just reading extensively from this because it's so lovely. Um, the thing about gardens is that they're about both shaping things and letting them shape you. By definition, you want to make a mark on the landscape, but the longer you work in any particular garden, the more you have to conform to what the garden throws back at you. You change it and yourself as it develops, and its scale changes as some plants grow larger and others stay the same. You discover new plants you didn't know about, or the pleasure when some foliage you hadn't really thought about before is illuminated by late afternoon light. Instead of obsessively racing around each week to see what's growing, you learn the pleasures of walking away and leaving plants to their own devices, of calming down and letting things take their course. You return to find a spindly plant from a pot transformed into a substantial presence in the garden, asserting its happiness at being there. Or others, refusing to fit in with your aesthetic liking for three plants in a grouping with only one or two surviving. (laughs) You become a curator of something that has developed a life of its own rather than a curator. Anyway. Oh, that's great. It's so good. And also, tingly bits, like... Uh, just a crunchy 1,200 words on her garden. I just loved reading it. And I actually recommend this whole, there's a like, fabulous piece by um, Rick Morton as well about 
bureaucracy and shame about RoboDebt, which is really like a tremendous piece of writing. It's just, it's a great, it's a great mag. So um, on sale today, I think I just picked it up at the um, airport and went, oh, tingly bits, you made me cry. <laughs> Does anyone else call it tingly bits? I don't think so, but I'm going to keep doing it no. until it catches on. I am praying she does not hear this podcast. <laughs> no, she'll love it. She'll be cool with it. Um, before we finish, um, Australian story, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry. So, um, uh. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm very excited about that. It should be should be terrific, and it feels like a really good fit for where I'm at at the moment, which is um, not it, sort struggling of... to put pants on. I think is the like. <laughs> Yeah. No, just wanting to be, after 30 years of being tied to the daily news cycle, wanting to kind of explore. I still am very interested in people's stories, but I'd like to not be kind of tethered to the negativity of the news all the time. And so, and you know, Australian Story is one of the most beloved shows on the network, if not in the country. Um, and, you know, they to, to deliver the quality that they have delivered for 26 years is just phenomenal. And so I'm just so flattered that they, um, you know... You're backing a winner. That's what's going on. You're like, you've done the hard work. I'm going to get aboard. <laughs> Things seem to be going great. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Imagine if, like, Australian Street tanks now. After, I'm just like, after 26 years. Well, it went of, downhill. When that 26 years of golden like, goodness. Did you see what they had on last week? It was about Lisa's handbag. <laughs> <laughs> Rode it into a ditch. Now, I will, I'm also on long service leave, and I'm, like, just enjoying growing vegetables and, you know, having naps. But um, I uh, also have been doing a heap of cooking and I've started my Christmas baking. My Christmas cake that I use is this old Jamie Oliver Christmas cake recipe because it's got like almost half a litre of alcohol in it, which I, which, you know, I think seems about a right, the right amount. My friend Katrina came around a couple of years ago, I'll never forget it, and she said, um, oh, I put an extra tablespoon of brandy in my Christmas. I'm like... <laughs> Because I use it as an excuse to, like, clear out the cabinet with all the oh. sort of, like, butt ends of oh. sherry and things. Oh, wow. And like, my, you know, wow. everything goes in there. Wow. No child's allowed near it. But um, <laughs> anyway, but, I mean, it sits there for months, so presumably it all evaporates or Is something. it one of those ones where you go and periodically open and stick some more alcohol into it? Right. Yep. That okay. is happening right now. Um, but also, do you remember Anya Dunk? This, no. um oh, Remember, I've, I've never a, even heard of it. I've gone on and on and on about her book, Strudel, Noodles and Dumplings, <laughs> which is the most fantastic and personally photographed by the author book of kind of German noodly things. It's so good. There's like 10 recipes with quark. I mean, Hans, are you still He's there? He's long gone. <laughs> I've... He's here! <laughs> I think we're finishing with German baking. Uh, I think we need possibly to, bring to get back Hans. Hans. I mean, Can you come you back, know, Hans? We're working to a Are climax. Are you still mic'd up? Just give him time. He's got to get mic'd back up. So I'm getting, uh, I'm getting very excited about her new cookbook, which is called Advent, and it's about German Christmas baking. So it's got all of those, yeah... Do you it's, know, while we wait for Hans to come out... Um, I've been very all, unfair, because like, he's already you know, he's, taken his hat off and everything. I'm like... Yeah. 
Heilige Nacht. There you go. That's all I know of that song. Your German baking, how's it going? Your Christmas baking, is it well, progressing? Well, I, I have been a little bit incapacitated this year, but I do like doing a Christmas pudding that I got the recipe from Willsey. So there's about three litres of booze in that one. It's great. So yes. no Turkish delight for you this year? I'm still flammable from last year's Christmas pudding, actually. And, and this fabric as well. Mm. Do you know, after our last podcast, the one that you said had a lot of German references in it... Yes. Um, Your hat has three corners. Yeah, my hat yes. has three corners. That, I had so much correspondence from people talking about... We also did Manhut. It was so strange. So many people got in touch. And so 50% of people were in touch about that. 50% of people were in touch about Sexy Sax Man with other clips of... Oh, yes. yes. Tina Turner had a very sexy sax man for a long time. Does anybody remember? He had like big muscles. I love how there's someone just going, yes, yes. I remember Tina Turner's... Yes, yeah. The sexy sax man needs to make it. There was one in Eurovision a few years ago who was great. And he had like a... Somebody said me. I love how every ra- like random observation has one audience member. Goes, yes. Testify. Yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Yep. Oh, the boys got the Eurovision reference. Come on. Oh, no, they didn't. Okay. Somebody sent me a. I won't go into it after the handbag story, but um, someone sent me a Saturday Night Live skit of uh, a sexy sax man skit, and John Hamm is playing sexy sax man, and he's got the full suspenders and the big mullet. Anyway. Oh, it's that's really it. She's funny. off. It's really funny. I, if I try and describe it, I'll just be on the ground in hysterics, and so I'm not going and to. And I think we all Google agree there is nothing funnier than a person on stage inarticulately oh. trying to describe something they saw on YouTube that was really funny. <laughs> I, mean, I do this all the time as well. I hear it. Don't oh. worry. I've tuned in to this podcast, and I somehow keep listening to it. It's amazing. I know. No, what? what? you're doing. Maybe if you play it backwards if there's a hidden message in this podcast or something. Well, I feel tonight's been a massive smash yes. hit, don't you? I mean, welcome to my homeland, Lee Sales. Thank you for being Thank you, everybody. Thank you. The Please Beach take House. And a massive welcome home to Thank Hans. You. Oh, honey. Woo! My gosh. Oh, God. Wow. Thank you so much for turning out. Thank you for honouring her Madge. Her new Madge. And it's lovely to be back. Thank you!